You're listening to a UCD Humanities Institute podcast. This podcast series features recordings of lectures, seminars and events hosted by or associated with the University College Dublin Humanities Institute. Our podcasts are available on Apple, Spotify and on SoundCloud. For more information and to listen to hundreds of podcasts, go to ucd.ie forward slash humanities. In this episode, a recording from Empire and Ecologies, Transimperial, Transhistorical and Transregional Natures from the 17th to the 21st century. This symposium took place on the 1st and 2nd of July 2021 and was funded by the UCD Humanities Institute's seed funding scheme and the European Research Council through the South Hem Project. Panel 4, Biodiversity and Indigenous Knowledges, was convened and chaired by Megan Custer. The speakers were Emma Powell and Miranda Richardson, who presented on Inside and Outside the Bubble of Empire, a dialogue on the New Zealand realm. Yunsi Sai presented on The Ecopolitics of Indigenous Activism in Sabah, East Malaysia. Artemis Kane presented on Which Lens? On Biodiversity and Worldviews. And Lachlan Fleetwood, who presented on Useless and Incapable of Being Made Useful. Imperial Environmental Imaginaries and Indigenous Topographies of Afghanistan and the Pamirs. So hello and a very warm welcome to everyone joining us. My name is Megan Custer and on behalf of my co-organizer Sarah Komen, the director of the UCD Environmental Humanities Research Strand, Sheree Deckard, and all the other members of UCD's Environmental Humanities Strand, I'd like to welcome you all to the second and final day of our Empire and Ecologies Symposium. We're so delighted with the conversations generated by yesterday's panels on environmental disaster, creative praxis, and ecologies of antiquity. And we're looking forward to a second stimulating day in your company online today. So we're going to start off with a panel on biodiversity and indigenous knowledges, followed by a panel on blue humanities, and then the symposium will conclude with a roundtable on methodologies for analyzing extractivism, and we'll be joined for that by scholars working on this topic across a wide range of geographical locations and time periods. And now, without further delay, um, I'm delighted to begin with our first panel on biodiversity and indigenous knowledges. Um, this panel aims to amplify work by indigenous scholars and artists that responds to topics of empire and ecologies and to present a range of work um, from all scholars that analyzes conceptualizations of biodiversity using indigenous studies frameworks. So the panel features five scholars responding to these topics, working from a range of disciplines, including literary studies, indigenous studies, Pacific studies, history, museum studies, and photography. Um, and a range of different time periods from the 19th century through to the contemporary period, as well as different geographical locations from London, England to Afghanistan and the Pamirs, including Sabah and East Malaysia and the New Zealand realm and the Pacific Empire. So the format for the panel will include four short presentations, then we'll have a longer Q&A. Um, again, your questions are invited by putting them, typing them into the Q&A function there at the bottom of the screen. So first up, we have... Um, Dr. Emma Powell and Dr. Miranda Johnson. Um, Emma is a lecturer at the University of Otago where she teaches in Indigenous Development and Indigenous Studies. 
Previously trained as a literary scholar, Emma recently completed her doctoral thesis at Victoria University in Wellington in Pacific Studies. In that work, she explored the genealogical practices of her people and ancestors who belong to various islands, making up what is known as the Cook Islands Nation. As is the nature of genealogies, her research, teaching, and academic engagements have necessarily ventured beyond the Cook Islands and the discipline of Pacific studies, always with the anticipation of return. Joining Emma is Dr. Miranda Johnson. Um, Dr. Johnson is a senior lecturer in the history program at the University of Otago in Aotearoa, New Zealand. Dr. Johnson is a historian of the modern Pacific world, focusing on colonial, indigenous, and cross-cultural histories. She's the author of the prize-winning book, the Land is Our History, Indigeneity, Law, and the Settler State that was published by Oxford University Press in 2016. And she's the co-editor with Warwick Anderson and Barbara Brooks of the volume Pacific Futures, Past and Present, which was published by the University of Hawaii Press in 2018. She's also taught at the University of Sydney and the University of Wisconsin-Madison. So over to you, Emma and Miranda. Thanks, Megan. Uh, namua. Kia koto kwa ramene i te atua tau, kia rā nga koto katutua, mai i a māwa kotokutaiate. E te tau te Miranda Johnson, e karanga atu nei māwa kia koto mai i te inua o kaitahu, te ititangata o otākau i ōtipoti nei. Mei taki kia rātou nō tō rātou maru i runga i tō māwa tūranga ki te arewānanga o otākau. I offer our acknowledgements to the people of Kaitahu Whanui, and to the people of Otako, on whose ancestral land, here in Dunedin, New Zealand, we live our lives and do our work as educators, researchers, and writers. To the organizers of the conference today, thank you for the invitation. And to our panel, warm greetings to you. To Miranda Johnson, who joins me in conversation today, thank you, my friend, for making time to dialogue as we both wrestle with our developing exploration of empire in our ongoing research collaboration. For us both, it is not so much or only about contested geographical borders, as we might assume, but a need to grapple with the various framings of New Zealand empire and the various positionalities that comprise it. Imperial, indigenous, settler, colonial, historical, political, and so on. We hoped to tether our exploratory dialogue with the abstract, so we hope you have read it. <laughs> the bubble we refer to in our abstract has its genesis in the public health approach taken by the New Zealand government when the COVID-19 pandemic began. The bubble has come to represent two things, the family unit one would be a part of during nationwide lockdowns, and more recently, the travel bubbles that have allowed specific travel between New Zealand um, and Australia and New Zealand and the Pacific nation of the Cook Islands. In the spirit of the abstract of this symposium, empire, ecology, and for us on this panel, concepts of indigeneity and biodiversity, the idea and widespread use of the bubble concept has prompted our critical thoughts on the persistent invisibility of an ecology of New Zealand empire. As well, and in spite of that, we also wish to explore the ongoing interrelation and interdependence of those inside the conceptual, constitutional, geographic, and familial bubble of New Zealand empire in our ongoing collaboration. 
The New Zealand realm has been a central issue in my work to date, mostly because it isn't a central issue for many others. Indeed, it is not really spoken about at all in New Zealand's public discourse. The first travel bubble came about for economic, political and relational reasons, the last being an acknowledgement of the long relationship between two settler colonial nations, Australia and New Zealand, in our relatively isolated part of the globe. The second, because the Cook Islands continues to be a warm part of New Zealand's Pacific Empire, where many New Zealanders holiday, and with no COVID cases, was considered to be safe enough to be a part of a much needed extension of New Zealand's family bubble. The metaphor of imperial ecology and the somewhat fragile boundary of protection and safety that the bubble represents offers a way to position ourselves and our work. In our ongoing collaboration on the history, politics, and meaning of the imperial bubble to the lives of those within it, we are interested in the ways that boundary making happens in a national imaginary. Kia ora, Anna, Emma, Tanakoto Katoa. Thank you, Megan, for the opportunity to speak today in conversation with my friend Emma and to learn from all of you. As Emma's just pointed out, the metaphor of the bubble is an enticing one, but it's also one that's surprisingly difficult to pierce analytically. We're interested in how the metaphor has been stretched from family unit to family of nations, yet uh, in terms of one that's, whose familiarity with and to each other is profoundly uneven. So we're grappling with what the bubble includes, but what it is also structurally ex what is also structurally excluded or made invisible in such a metaphor. Another way that I've been thinking about the invisibility of New Zealand's empire in New Zealanders' consciousness is to draw on Charles Mills's concept of white ignorance. Mills explains that he wants to, quote, pin down an ignorance, a non-knowing that is not contingent, but in which race, white racism and or white racial domination and their ramifications plays a cr crucial causal role, end quote. In New Zealand, white settler ignorance, including my own, certainly involves a not knowing of racialized others. But race is not the only discourse at work here. Settler colonialism is also centrally concerned with relationships to place and displacement. Thinking about New Zealand's expansionist efforts in the Pacific in the late 19th century further complicates the idea of white settler ignorance because it demands specific theorization of the epistemological limits imposed by a settler colonial project. Such projects are often assumed, even by contemporary theorists, to stop at a certain border. This border is not only geographical in the sense that it marks the boundaries of a particular territory, it is also a historical boundary that marks the completion of a project of dispossession, the achievement of what uh, the legal scholar Lisa Ford has called settler sovereignty. But New Zealand's Pacific Empire exceeds that geographical and historical boundary making. When it was inaugurated in the late 19th century, it was not a project of settlement, even though it was a settler project. It did not entail a mass displacement of indigenous peoples by land-hungry settlers, although some fantasized about such displacement. The fantasy underwrote the imposition of institutions that have inflicted considerable historical harms, for instance, that of the native land court, 
which was brought from New Zealand, where it was sometimes known by Māori here as the land-taking court, to the Cook Islands in the early 20th century, where it has uh, produced um, ongoing problems around fragmentation of ownership. New Zealand's imperial project was, if any single cause can be discerned from a slippery colonial record, concerned with shoring up an emergence national settler identity in a historical moment when other European empires were scrambling for the Pacific and white New Zealanders and Australians anxiously sought prestige and security. The border that you refer to, Miranda, is indeed a product of epistemological limiting that has set borders which are in desperate need of historicizing, if only to make clear to us how imbricated the nations of New Zealand's empire are and thus how we are as citizens within an imperial ecology. This image is a page from my current passport. Though the Cook Islands nation is self-governing, it does, does not have its own passport. For those who can prove their parents were born in the Cook Islands and or that their grandparents were Cook Islanders and born there, it is possible to have your New Zealand passport stamped, declaring your free right of entry and right to remain in the Cook Islands indefinitely. This stamp is equivalent to a kind of Cook Islands citizenship and is relatively easy to obtain if your genealogy can be traced through the bureaucratic system. As an Indigenous person and scholar, born outside the Cook Islands nation, but traveling often there for work and to visit relations. This image and the bureaucratic process I took to obtain it offers much to ponder over. The stamp itself is nondescript. On this page of a 2020 issued New Zealand passport, the watermark features a topographical map of New Zealand. The stamp cuts across the outline of New Zealand and is headed Cook Islands immigration. This image prompts some questions. What ideas of New Zealand underpin such imagery and symbolism? At what moments were these ideas formed and by whom? How do such symbols reinforce ignorance and do they accurately represent a national imaginary? These are questions we're exploring in our new project that aims to map the history of New Zealand's empire and the making of the New Zealand realm as a product of colonial boundary making and of the transoceanic relations that have been nourished and sustained by peoples of the realm over the 20th century. Thank you so much, Emma and Miranda, um, for that really uh, provocative, for bringing us into your emerging dialogue um, and that provocative use of the metaphor of the bubble um, to highlight the invisibility of various kinds of imperial borders, epistemological and otherwise of empire. Um, next up, um, we have Yinsi Tsai. Yinsi is a lecturer in museum studies and co-program director of the MAMSC PG Diploma in Heritage and Interpretation program at the University of Leicester in the UK. Her research interests are in the cultural politics and museologies in and of Asia. Her monograph is entitled Staging Indigenous Heritage Instrumentalization, Brokerage, and Representation in Malaysia, and it was published by Rightledge in, in 2020. Um, that volume explores the cultural politics of four indigenous cultural villages in Malaysia. Yinsi has a PhD in Museum and Heritage Studies and an MA in Museum Studies with distinction, both from UCL's Institute of Archaeology. And so I pass it over to you now, Yinsi. Thank you. 
Thank you, Megan, for the um, wonderful introduction. Um, I, I, here, I, I think I shall um, give a five minutes introduction of what my presentation is about for those who have not had the opportunity to review the um, online presentation. So um, my presentation really explores the eco-politics of indigenous activism um, in Sabah in the eastern state of Malaysia, I'm focusing on how indigenous cultural heritage, especially environmental knowledge relating to sustainability, is instrumentalized by the indigenous people in Sabah for the assertion of their rights to their um, customary lands, territories and resources. My argument is that um, indigenous people draw on the imagination of these ecologically noble savages to resist their marginalization in contemporary Sabah, but this may constitute a double bind for the indigenous people because they have to be exoticized as ecologically noble savages for advancing um, indigenous activism. So I do this first by showing how the notion of indigeneity was actively constructed and perpetuated through the early colonial literature and later colonial policies for governance and administration, which was in turn influenced by the changing anthropological construction of the colonial subject over time, and how um, collectively how these um, processes inscribe, produce, and maintain the differences between the indigenous people and the non-indigenous people in relation to their physical bodies, their social positionings, as well as the entitlements to their lands, territories, and resources. Um, and later, through two case studies, um, focusing on um, two NGOs in Sabah, namely the Pakos Trust or, and CLEAR, I will show how these um, communities are drawing on environmental strategies for indigenous activism, for example, such as encouraging um, planting um, native plants um, so that, you know, through those um, land laws, they were able to um, assert their indigenous identities and therefore um, gain access to nature reserves or or rights to their indigenous lands. But I show how this sort of um, uh, environmental strategies capitalize on this age or romanticization of indigenous peoples, noble savages, being close to nature, having practices that promote environmental sustainability to make the case that they are better stewards of the lands and the territories that they um, lived on. But, but this is often more a rhetoric than a reflection of reality. And, um, as um, you know, the, the um, pollution and ongoing um, uh, marginalization of uh, the, the land of the indigenous people and pollution of the lands in Sabah, et cetera, are actually much more complicated, you know, than, than this um, rhetoric. And, and sometimes I argue this mobilization of the environmental rhetoric can constitute a double bound contrary dualism for the indigenous people if they have to be exoticized as um, ecologically noble savage in order to derive benefits um, from the indigenous activism. So that's all I have. Thank you, Megan. Thank you very much, Yunsi. Um, thanks for sharing some of your latest research with us. Um, I was really interested in your critical discussions of how political rights can be advanced in relation to indigenous conceptions of land management. So maybe something to return to in the discussion. Thank you. Um, and just a reminder to the attendees, uh, your questions are welcome. Please feel free to type them into the Q&A feature at the bottom of your screens. And next up, um, we have Artemis Kane. Artemis is a, a wildlife photographer um, who is currently living in London, England. They were born and raised on the Treaty 1 territory of what is currently called Canada. They identify as Matian Two-Spirit with European heritage. 
Their educational background is eclectic and self-described as, quote, trying to understand how living beings do. Artemis is interested in pursuing a master's and or a PhD in either conservation or public policy and currently fill their days with caring for their pets, their backyard, and their business. So over to you, Artemis. Thank you so much, Megan. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm really happy to be here. And uh, I just want to start with a quote from What a Plant Knows. Um, it is a bit poetic and it is the oaks and the pines and their brethren of the wood have seen so many suns rise and set, so many seasons come and go and so many generations pass into silence that we may well wonder what the story of the trees would be to us if they had tongues to tell it or we ears fine enough to understand. This is uh, from Maud Van Buren, Quotations for Special Occasions. And uh, I found this poem to be striking because it shows beautifully the idea of two worldviews being considered at the same moment. Do we ask the trees to learn to speak to us in a way we understand, or do we ourselves learn to change so we can listen to the trees? I obviously would favor learning how to listen. As humans love to boast about our big brains, why not use it for something worthwhile? But um, going to the next page, the author then says, unlike Grandmother Willow in Disney's Pocahontas, old trees don't remember the history of the people who have slept in their shade. And I felt myself grimacing. How do we know for sure that they don't remember us? It was very jarring to have this statement made so bluntly when the author had previously been very humble and rigorously scientific in his writing. Something such as, uh, we have yet to find evidence that supports this, is a very different cry from this doesn't exist. The historical and ongoing knowledges in Western society often come from places of pride that were geared to proving human superiority, or more specifically, white male superiority. Even today, Western science dismisses many thoughts or projects as frivolous because of this background. The amount of knowledge that we don't know we know is staggering, and what I want is some humility, admission that sometimes we just don't know. In my video, I talked about how biodiversity drives changes of camera lenses and wildlife photography. I then related this to how different worldviews also have strengths and weaknesses. It was the first video I made, and so I apologize if it was a little rough. I originally had bigger plans for the video, but with the news coming out of the land currently known as Canada lately, my mental and emotional resources have been overtaxed. In my video, I talk about how worldviews need to work together to protect each other from their blind spots. But what I didn't address is the issues of systemic violence and where the responsibility lays to fix those issues. I just wanna take the time right now to simply state that while we can help each other, it is not the job of indigenous peoples to heal the connection between our worlds that has been so badly damaged, nor can we do it alone, even if we tried. The jobs rest on the shoulders, so, shoulders of those who superficially but tangibly benefit from our pain. I truly believe that we can do more for this world together than we can do apart. But what I am skeptical about is whether the Western world can let go of a seat for empire, for conquer, or for objective superiority. Um, other people have been presenting this very well, so I'd like to yield time to everyone else. Marcy, thank you, and I'm really looking forward to the discussion. Thank you so much, Artemis, and thank you for your video presentation as well. It was really fantastic. Um, yeah, and so, so interested in how um, you talk about um, the navigation of the two worldviews simultaneously through your artistic process. So thank you so much. 
Um, next up, we have Lachlan Fleetwood. Um, Dr. Lachlan Fleetwood is an Irish Research Council postdoctoral fellow at University College Dublin, which he joined following a PhD in history at Cambridge University. At UCD, he is developing a new project on environmental determinism in imperial surveys of Central Asia, Persia, and Mesopotamia. His first book, entitled Science on the Roof of the World, Empire, and the Remaking of the Himalaya, will be published by Cambridge University Press in 2022. So over to you, Lachlan. All right, so yeah, my talk then, um, which some of you might have seen on the website, uh, already considers 19th century uh, environmental imaginaries of Afghanistan and the Pamirs. And it relates, as Megan mentions, to a wider project which I'm developing uh, on environmental determinism in imperial surveys um, and some of the ways that they were resisted and contested. So the role of uh, environmental imaginaries then, especially here I'm thinking of the idea of the tropics uh, in the imperial appropriation of territories and peoples, uh, is especially in uh, South Asia, uh, has of course been well established by scholars. Uh, but we still know uh, somewhat less about uh, how imperial categorization worked in arid and upland regions like uh, those of Central Asia, uh, which we see here. So in the 19th century then, this region becomes an important sphere in imperial geopolitics uh, as one of the last allegedly blank spaces for European geography. Um, and so in imperial accounts then, it's often depicted as a space on the edge of or between empires, a zone of topographical or environmental extremes. Um, all of which, of course, fail to account for its long-standing role as a space of migration, of trade, and of course, lives and livelihoods. So in my couple of minutes now, I'll just give one example of these imperial imaginaries um, from Afghanistan and then one from the Pamirs. So in 1839, there was an East India Company surgeon uh, named uh, William Griffith who traveled to, the Afghanistan, uh, to Afghanistan um, at the beginning of what would become known as the First Anglo-Afghan War. Uh, and his aim was to uh, collect the largely unknown natural history of the country, uh, a task which was somewhat necessarily complicated by the fact that he was simultaneously invading it. And so while there, he frequently complained about the aridness uh, of the landscape and the poor um, biodiversity of Afghanistan, writing, for example, uh, at present, I'm in the worst country upon earth, that is, so far as the botanical pabulum goes, I never saw such abominable sandy wastes. Um, another botanist who uh, travelled to Afghanistan two years later with reinforcements is similarly disappointed uh, to Griffith, uh, and he blames this disappointment in particular, uh, like Griffith, on regional global comparisons. Um, but his assessment in the end is, is similarly damning, and he writes, Afghanistan is an excessively barren, stony country, useless and incapable of being made useful. Um, of course, embedded in these imperial uh, geographies is, is various forms of civilizational discourse uh, and of environmental determinism. So imperial agents then commonly conflate linked scientific critiques of soil, hydrography and climate um, with supposed cultural failings. There's also a tension, though, in that it's readily apparent that sophisticated technologies, so canals, irrigation, uh, have long been used to expand the limits of cultivation and habitability. Um, so a key result of this tension is that these uh, technologies are often seen as products of a former golden age um, and compared to a degenerated present where uh, mismanagement leads to uh, environmental degradation and decline. Um, so neg negative assessments then of unimprovability are delineated during the violence of the colonial war, feed into uh, tropes and understandings of a landscape of what one scholar called violent geography, a trope that continues to shape imperial interactions with Afghanistan through the 19th century and beyond. 
Okay, I'll quickly now move to the Pamirs. Uh, there was a naval officer named John Wood, travelled there in 1838 uh, to survey the hydrography. Um, and he depended on his Indigenous guides, from whom he learned uh, what they told him. So he writes, the Wakanis named this plain found by Denier for the roof of the world. Um, and so it would suggest the Persian phrase, uh, also variations in, in Waki and Tajik. Um, this, uh, so uh, he kind of implies it uncritically, and this uncritical uh, imperial uh, usage spreads so that the evocative phrase, uh, roof of the world, is actually later more frequently applied to the Himalaya and to High Asia, uh, and especially in the 20th century to the Tibetan Plateau. So in the original usage, the regionally specific reference to the Pamirs is often lost uh, almost entirely. And so imperial imaginaries might borrow from uh, existing categorizations, uh, but, but not always coherently. Um, staying in the Pamirs for a moment, Thomas Edward Gordon, uh, another, uh, of the, uh, another European surveyor, visited in 1873. Like Wood, he was entirely dependent on indigenous networks to operate there. And from them, he comes to learn something more of the meaning of Pamir in an indigenous sense. And so he writes, uh, regarding the name Pamir, the meaning appears to be a wilderness, a waste of place abandoned yet capable of habitation. Um, I'll just wrap up now and say that uh, various natural historical assessments of Afghanistan and the Pamirs feed then into growing imaginaries that say these, see these places as barren wastelands, lacking in biodiversity uh, and imperial potential for improvement. So vast parts of Central Asia then come to be seen in uh, Thompson's words as useless and incapable of becoming useful. Categorizations that simultaneously uh, borrow from indigenous topographies, uh, even if only haphazardly. And so ultimately then uh, I'm trying to consider how these processes and overlaps uh, allow a reflection on time when disciplines like geography and ecology are in the making, uh, as well as consider the significant extent uh, to which these imperial categories, which we now still uh, sometimes take for granted, uh, shape our imaginations today. Thanks. Thank you so much, Lachlan, um, for tracing through some a couple different examples of how imperial categorization worked in relation to botanical and topographical conceptualizations. Um, and yeah, thank you to all our panelists. I'd like to bring you all back now. Um, this leads us into the discussion portion of the panel. Um, and just as it is an opportunity for um, this collection of us to be together and considering the, the wide range of disciplines um, that you're all working from and different topics, um, you're welcome if you want to address any ideas um, that you heard in other papers um, for those uh, to be asked now. Um, the audience is also welcome to type in questions into the Q&A. And if there's no questions immediately, I'm happy to start. I mean, I have a question. Um, one of the themes that I saw run through the papers that I'm really interested in are these ideas of scale that I think um, all the papers touch on in, in really different ways. Um, like just, for example, Artemis, when you're thinking about uh, making your photographs in a landscape and how you're navigating different worldviews um, in relation to scales of what you're seeing and, and processing that near and far. Um, 
also um, Yancia is really interested in, in, in how you were talking about um, the movement between local traditional practices and the mobilization of Western environmental rhetoric. So that movement between very local and then this wider, um, broader scale of Western environmental rhetoric and like how how those scales like overlap or don't overlap or jar or sometimes work together, but not in easy ways. Um, and Lachlan, obviously you're working a lot with scale as well. And Emma and Miranda, um, yeah, i so fascinated in how um, your work is bringing up um, in addressing the New Zealand realm as a product of New Zealand's Pacific Empire, helping us think about scales that um, that are shrouded um, and, and, and what's shrouded um, imperially um, through those imperial histories. So yeah, I'd just welcome if anyone would like to talk about how your approaches to understanding scale is helping us make connections in fresh ways. I, I can jump in. Um, yeah, so I, I think scale uh, is, is central to everything I'm doing in a sense. I'm trying to figure out how the global itself was sort of constructed as a, as a tool of empire. Uh, and so particularly in the sense, you know, Griffith and Thompson are thinking globally when they make their comparisons, trying to fit Afghanistan into an emerging allegedly universal environmental order around scientific concepts, biogeography and altitude, et cetera. Um, and so in that sense, practical, you know, and local uh, information doesn't necessarily translate to the needs of this global order. Um, but scale also matters in terms of perspective. So a framing like the roof of the world uh, was actually largely applied by outsiders and lowlanders. Um, and so it might be a Persian cosmology, but it's not necessarily an indigenous one. Um, so even if even before it gets scrambled further by Europeans who end up uh, applying it to Tibet. Um, and so it's, it's the kind of need to remember that a standardized global biogeographical order isn't necessarily useful to those who've long lived uh, in the mountains. Uh, but in the flip side of that is that uh, the work of scaling is itself appropriation because it says then that the Waki can only operate or think on a local or regional level and it reserves the domain of the global or the planetary to European science. So. Thanks, Lachlan. So I'm happy to jump in to actually um, um, respond to that point on scale. And thank you, Megan, for um, raising this very important concept. I think when you talk about scale, um, you know, Anna Singh's book, The Frictions, um, actually an anography of global connections that is um, written based on um, Bonio, um, which is where part of which is part of Sabah, is really relevant here. And I think in the, that book, you know, she shows how global rhetoric of environmental conservation um, has um, it, it's been um, kind of interpreted on the ground, and and how you know through um, all these consumer goods, some of these um, um, ideas about environmental discourse jump scales, you know, when you know. Um, and and I, I think relating to my own research on indigenous um, activism in Sabah, you know, I also remember a quote that, um, you know, um, that I encountered from um, Pakos Trust, um, you know, the director of um, the, one of the NGOs that I work with. So she, I, I, um, she told me, you know, um, you know, when we first, so I'm, I found, um, you know, I have the quote um, that she said with me here. So she said, you know, when we first started, we were student activists and there was no consciousness of what indigenous as how we understand indigenous today. And we were just concerned about our rights, environment and the social justice injustices around us. And the word indigenous um, was not there yet. And that was in the 1980s. And it was when the United Nations have this international decade 
um, for the world's indigenous people that we begin to, uh, to talk and look at ourselves and really at what we have, what we are losing. And that consciousness really came to be more systematic. So with that um, declaration in place, um, people from different parts of the world came together and to talk about the issues that Indigenous people are all facing, especially losing their lands, losing their cultures and losing their language. Then we suddenly see, oh, you know, it was not just me, but other communities around the, the, um, the world facing the same issues. So from then on, um, the, you know, the Indigenous people in Sabah, uh, you know, uh, you know, there was then this um, wave of, um, you know, Indigenous consciousness within Sabah. So here, I think, you know, when we talk about skill, I think it's interesting to see how, you know, Indigenous people in Sabah were drawing on this, um, you know, a wider discussion about Indigenous rights that were taken at these um, global levels and, you know, and applying these to um, actually for the assertion of their rights. So, you know, when they look across the um, Brazil and looking at how, you know, the Amazon Indians were working for environmental causes to further their rights, for example, you know, these were concepts that they took on upon themselves and started um, applying them to, to um, you know, um, the, the, the world around them. So, I, you know, the, I think, and on the, at the same time, you know, in another of the case study that I did with Indigenous people in um, Peninsula Malaysia, I saw how, um, you know, um, the the indigenous people in um, the Orang Salita people in uh, in 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 the north uh, in the southern tip of Peninsula Malaysia were drawing on these um, court cases that were fought in Canada, they were fought in Australia, etc. And to draw on these, um, you know, to advance the indigenous rights. And at the same time, you know, I you know some of these um, the, the court cases fought in Malaysia, for example, were used in um, court cases of. Um, of um, indigenous people in other countries. Um, so, you know, I think there is a lot of these um, transnational kind of interconnections at, um, from, from the global to the national to the local skills that, you know, and how they kind of interact and influence um, decisions on, on this interconnected um, kind of um, platform really, uh, um, you know, can offer us a, a, a wave for us to understand some of um, the ongoing issues that we have and we see in those um, locally, more locally. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, Nancy. Yeah, Emma and Miranda, go ahead, please. Yeah, it's a, it's a, I think it's something that's kind of at the center of what we're struggling with. Um, and um, I mean, I suppose in terms of what other people have really said, I think there's a few things that make what we're looking at kind of particularly peculiar and one of them is of course that one can you know my discipline is history I can read global history texts or I teach a history of decolonization I can read a global history of decolonization and not find the Pacific in it at all um, so at one level global history can be um, um, it has, it has its own kinds of limits that then we're trying to speak into um, by using the term empire and referring to a New Zealand empire that actually has very little perhaps purchase in some of the other much larger um, global historical narratives, right? Um, and yet, from speaking from New Zealand, it clearly has, um, we're, we're kind of trying to think about what it means to be centering a project of empire in a, in a place that, for other people close to us has been considered as a metropolitan centre um, and uh, yet one that 
I think from the outside, I don't know what you think about this, but but from the outside would be seen could easily be seen as kind of insignificant or sort of ridiculous in some way. Right? Like New Zealand's this tiny little country at the bottom of the world. Why does that, you know, why what what kind of significance do these things really have? And yet sitting for us sitting here, of course, they have huge, huge kinds of significance. Um, so I guess it's sort of scale plus trying to push back against um, questions of significance or um, kinds of, uh, yeah, questions of significance that are determined by histories elsewhere. Um, so what does it look like to then to write a more peculiar kind of history of an imperial project that is resisting mm. that attempt to be signified by the outside? Does that make sense? It does. <laughs> um, I think... Yeah, I would just say that I agree that one of the things that we are grappling with at the moment is scale, actually. Mm -hmm. um, the idea, I mean, you, you can tell that obviously some of the early work that we're doing is about critical cartographies and critical geographies and trying to think about um, what, kinds of, what kinds of scale are most useful to us in order to understand the, you know, the questions that we're, that we're asking around borders, around boundaries, around who establishes them. Um, some of our earlier conversations and certainly carrying on from my, my own personal doctoral research is around, you know, scales that um, are not necessarily about distance or, you know, the measurement of distance, but rather about inverting scales, actually, and trying to think differently about distance and, and centering and, and perhaps decentering in the abstract sense in order to see other ways of um, the national imaginary, imaginary being built and I think in terms of Indigenous discourses and Indigenous experiences, Indigenous imaginaries, um, this, is one of the, this is one of the things that can obscure, I think, the ways that Indigenous peoples are understanding those imaginaries, particularly something like a New Zealand empire. That is actually what scales are, are Indigenous people using in order to understand their relationship to, say, a metropolitan centre. And, and is it always about distance? I mean, one one thought that we were kind of playing with earlier on was, um, you know, like in the historical conversation, I think we talked early on about like, is it useful for us to pick a period in order to understand empire? If instead we do say, uh, if we say we go beyond a particular moment and that's how we're going to frame temporally what we're going to look at to scope as the scope for our research project, does that change our perspective of the question. So we talked about this a little bit mm -hmm. earlier on. Is it useful to say the 19th century? Why don't we say um, beyond this point and this point and use moments instead to measure the ways that we are acquiring about finding this empire? So all to say, yes, scales are very important <laughs> and we are working through this also. <laughs> Thanks. That's so fascinating um, to hear how you're thinking about scale is really changing um, how you're asking the questions as well in really fresh ways. Yeah. And I don't know, Artemis, did you want to come in? Um, I can say a little bit. Um, everyone's saying such great points. And then I'm going to be like, photos. Um, <laughs> like there is there is a scale. Um, you know, with landscape, I stand very far back. And then up to macro, I'm centimeters from that creature. And so to me, scale in my life ends up with the question of proximity and responsibility. Because the closer I get, the higher the impact I have. I can stand, in theory, on a little piece of like a decking or something and get a gorgeous landscape 
and then leave and the nature never has to deal with anything. But as I get closer and closer, my footprints are there. I might trample something. I might disturb something that was nesting, who knows? And so that responsibility gets more and more critical as time goes on. And I'd also like to point with scale to the, uh, Yunsi's talk of the economic, uh, the ecologically noble savage. Um, as I do my work, then it starts to go more global because it's online. And there's this line to walk that I, I think a lot about actually, because I am indigenous, my worldview is mine. But when people say, oh, you're indigenous, they often think now you get to speak for all indigenous people or you must be what they all are. And so you get into that double bind where if I say I'm connected to nature, it's like, ooh, you're like the mythical being that's lost. And it's like, no, this is, this is me. And it's informed by my family, by my people, but I can't speak for everybody. And so watching that scale is interesting and trying to find where the answer is, is I haven't found the answer yet, but I'm hoping that I can walk a healthy and good line. Thank you so much, Arjuna. Thanks. Um, I want to move into some questions from that are coming in from attendees now. Um, one here from Sinead Moulds, um, which is addressed to, to all the panelists, really. Um, she says, thanks for the excellent and insightful presentations. I'd love to know from any of the panelists if you've come across any genuine attempts from the Western institutions or countries to integrate traditional knowledge from indigenous populations to inform decision-making or evidence bases. And um, Sinead goes on, for example, in development cooperation efforts, is traditional knowledge ever used to inform approaches to environmental projects? Or more specifically, um, the Fergana Valley, for example, is meant to have an abundance of biodiversity due to community natural resource management. Is anyone exploring how local communities have conserved this biodiversity? Um, I might be able to just take a quick stab at this while other people collect their thoughts. Um, genuine attempt from Western institutions is um, an interesting term because how do we define genuine? Um, I personally don't know of anything that I would personally describe as genuine because it's often these people have good intent and they try to do something, but the institution itself doesn't have the intent. Um, so I'm curious if anyone does have an example of this, but I feel that the definition of genuine in this case is very, very critical. And then looking once again at that scale, because you have someone in an office who wants to do good genuinely, but what's going on around them. I think, thank you, um, Artemis, for raising that um, issue of um, genuine. I think this is indeed um, really a complex issue because, um, you know, I think there were some attempts that were, you know, believed to be, um, you know, where I think people involved believe that they were um, drawing on um, traditional approaches, but actually on hindsight, some of these approaches may become, be seen as quite tokenistic. I'm just wondering, you know, you know, that when we talk about Western institutions applying um, traditional methods, you know, there is an implicit um, unequal power relations in which, you know, if you, this a project is funded by an international um, organization. You know, you know, it's, it's often all these um, international bureaucracies and funding um, um, kind of um, imbalances that may structure how this project may be conceptualized. So I have came across a research or um, actually um, 
friends working on environmental projects in Borneo, where, you know, the indigenous people will be telling us, you know, actually, we need to manage those, um, you know, um, Western organizations or Western funders, uh, you know, in order to get the funding. And so what they do is that, you know, there are these um, roles in the middle, um, you know, the brokers who kind of um, package the project in order to suit um, those um, requirements of these international funders. But at the same time, you know, they were also um, negotiating uh, with the local dynamics because when you work locally, um, I think it's important to bear in mind that when you work with indigenous people, there are also hierarchies, you know, elders um, may, well, may have a sense of what they want to do, the, the local, um, the, you know, the younger people who may be trained in all these Western institutions may have a, an idea of what they want to do. So, you know, it's, it's all these, um, I think there's a, a lot of dynamics um, actually that um, involve here that needs to be unpacked further, um, you know, for us to understand um, some of these local practices of, um, of, you know, kind of indigenous approach. And also, I think bear in mind, um, you know, a lot of the indigenous people are also going to universities who kind of promote a Western um, forms of knowledge. And, and sometimes, you know, these kind of, um, you know, through the education system, through the way we are schooled, we sometimes, um, even, even Indigenous people, you know, may bring upon these kind of Western, Western ideas and Western um, approaches, um, you know, to the, um, to conservation projects as well. So I think, you know, some of these boundaries are not very clear and needs to be clarified. Thank you. Thanks, Cincy. And Emma, I see you nodding. Do you want to? Well, I just wanted to share an example that I think is probably working um, in the Cook Islands context. So, I mean, already the Cook Islands con context is complex, right? Because actually we are sec technically self-governing. So in terms of having a Western government, that's not quite the case. Um, I don't know if people have heard of Neotero, who um, support Indigenous people and in, to to sort of um, take care of their ecosystems. Um, I'm not going to say that I know completely the arrangement that they have with an NGO in the Cook Islands, or to say that the NGO in the Cook Islands, and I'll put this in the chat afterwards, is called Korero Osiro. They've grown and they've been working in the, in the Cook Islands for, for quite some time, and they have many different projects that are happening. As far as I know, Neotero has um, been pretty hands-off, actually, with the way that the community has decided to go about their governance and their the way that they design their, their programs. Um, and they have undertaken a lot of work that in our context, it's not possible for the government to take on some of the, that work. They just do not have the resources. So the NGO sector in the Cook Islands is quite large and it, it depends a lot on volunteer work, so unpaid, um, and a lot of conversation amongst community for the resources that people are able to spare. So I think in many ways that has been quite successful and that, that resourcing has come from, from a Western institution. Um, another, another project that Neotero has been involved in uh, is the Wakahodua project, which is um, they built, they're involved in helping to build um, seven traditional ocean voyaging bucca to go across the Pacific. And those those bucca were then um, given to various peoples around the Pacific to um, continue voyaging, um, teaching voyaging to local communities. So I'm, I'm sure that's not the full story, but um, I think there's some interesting, there's some interesting lessons there around working with Indigenous people, around the involvement of Indigenous people across the Pacific in their own sort of future building projects. Um, so I'll just, I'll leave that out there. I'll put in the chat who that organize, who those organisations are if people want to look up. Thank you. 
more. Thanks so much, Emma, and thanks for, for putting that in the, the chat so people can follow up. There are actually a couple more questions from attendees here in the chat. Um, uh, one specifically to, to Lachlan, um, Svetlana asks, um, she mentions the watercolor by Thomas Edward Gordon of the Victoria Lake from your presentation. Um, I find this watercolor absolutely enchanting, but why is it so pale, she asks, and almost monochrome. In the photographs, Lake Zorkel looks different, even assuming they are postcards advertising tourism, there should still be blue skies and mountains. Isn't the choice of color grade to a kind of additional means of describing the sterility of these lands? I don't know if that's something you can respond to. Yeah, sure. I mean, no, thanks for thanks for the question. I mean, it's it's just as uh, the kind of written uh, texts are full of tropes of barrenness. So same with the visual representation. I think in my my longer talk, which is online, I show an image at the end where there's a sort of skeleton in the foreground of, with the mountains in the back, and that's this. You know, there's this frequent uh, mention of you know death and desolation, but also there's the ways of representing that visually. Um, the color, I can't say too much about the the uh, watercolor there of, of Gordon. Um, but I think it's, I mean, it still happens today, right? I mean, there's these movies set in Dhaka that use a yellow filter to make it look sort of gritty or, um, you know, the Ever Given when this ship got stuck in the Suez Canal is all these sort of very kind of thing to make the Middle East look how the Middle East is supposed to look because you can't have a blue sky. And so, I mean, maybe even Artemis can say something about that because obviously the, the choice of, Lens is important, but the post-processing choice is also really important, right? Yeah. Um, one thing that a lot of people, like when you take a photo on your phone, it usually looks pretty accurate because it has a lot of software in the background actually pushing to try to capture what the eye would roughly see. But our eyes are incredibly dynamic. So if you go someplace, a photo almost never looks like that spot for various reasons. Um, and yeah, the the amount of control that a photographer has or arguably should have over the end product is surprisingly huge at the end of it. That's one of the uh, shocking things for me when I started getting into it was just seeing that like when you look outside and you think like grass is green and then you get a photo and you put it on your computer screen, and you're like, that's not the same green. Like if I were to take a photo right now, I could throw it up and give you a live feed and I have to edit to try to remember what that green was. I have to try to bring it back because of how digital processing works. And so like, it's so complicated because now you're running on my memory, maybe not even reality, because often you don't get to see that thing that you were drawing or taking a photo of. So you're relying on your memory, which relies on you know memes and everything. And so if you think that something's gray, you're going to process it gray, definitely. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um... I think we have time for one more question here as well. Um, uh, specifically addressed to, to, to Yunsi, but others might want to respond to it as well. Um, the question is from some Ruth, is from Ruth, and she's asking if Yunsi could uh, please discuss a little bit more the, the double bind that Indigenous activists find themselves in. Yep, I think, um, thank you very much, Ruth, for your question. I think. Um, um, I think my point here is to um, actually, uh, you know, I hope to be able to look at the issue of this um, ecologically noble savage more critically, you know, so by looking at examples of where, you know, often I think Indigenous people, um, you know, are um, coming into alliances with environmental agencies, um, you know, where both um, 
environmental agencies and also indigenous um, groups come together and drawing on each other um, causes um, to advance their rights. And this sort of alliances of, is often um, being premised on the idea that the HO romanticization that, you know, indigenous people are gentle, you know, they are um, close to their nature, they are um, in, in tune with um, the wild and all that. But I think what, um, you know, I have um, observed in my research is that this sort of, um, uh, you know, the idea it's very much a romanticization more than a reflection of reality. And um, because, you know, when you talk about those, um, you, you know, those environmental issues in Sabah, you're always um, reinforced, it seems to reinforce the rights that the indigenous people are the ones who are um, protecting the environment. Whereas it is the non-indigenous people who, who are the ones who are working with all these big companies to, um, um, to um, you know, giving up contracts to um, um, Hamoi companies to to turn traditional lands, um, forests at all into, um, um, you know, oil, palm oil plantation, building dams at all. But in places such as Sabah, where the majority of the governing um, body um, are still the indigenous people, you know, it, it's often also the indigenous people themselves, the, the elites, for example, were also the ones signing off contracts for various um, reasons. So, so there, there is a lot more complexities involved. And, you know, but we often, uh, when we when we analyze these issues, we often um, look at this boundary between um, Indigenous people and non-Indigenous people very uncritically. And sometimes for Indigenous, um, you know, because the idea of the noble savage is being built on this colonial construction of, um, you know, by British colon, colonialite, um, colonialists, for example, who create this sort of imaginary. And sometimes, you know, um, when indigenous people begin to, um, to advance their rights based on this idea that, you know, we, we are indigenous people and therefore, you know, we know how to manage our landscapes in a sustainable way. We are inevitably also buying into that kind of um, colonial construction that, uh, you know, um, that indigenous people are uncivilized, are, they are backward, um, etc. You know, um, so so we, you know, when we use um, certain um, romantic imagination, we are we are also, I think, inevitably. Um, drawing on other negative connotations associated with this binary. So that was um, really the point that I was um, trying to make with the issue, um, with the idea of a double bind. So thank you. Thank you, Yinsi. Um, I don't know if anyone else wants to come in briefly there, but thank you for starting to uh, trace some of that complexity um, as we deal with the, the, the imperial legacies. Um, and the ongoing um, neo-colonialism and neo-imperialism. Um, I feel like the conversation could go on and in some ways it's just getting started, um, although we're at time. So I just wanna thank all the panelists for coming together um, and, and being willing um, to so generously talk about your new research um, and to, to talk across um, disciplinary boundaries. Um, thank you so much for sharing your work and your ideas. And I am eagerly following um, what you're going to publish, create, um, and do next. Um, so thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this UCD Humanities Institute podcast. Our podcasts are available on iTunes, Spotify, 
and on SoundCloud. For more information and to listen to hundreds of podcasts, go to ucd.ie forward slash humanities.